0: The song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gitt. And this is How Wrestling Explains the World. Exciting episode today, Dave.
1: I feel like you just, like, always say that. I mean, I know that the topics are always exciting, but I'm starting to feel like this is just, like, a (laughs) put-on You do and I'm feeling insulted by
0: it. Are you not excited to talk about cover songs this week?
1: Oh, no, I I absolutely am. I think they are a, a, a rich topic as
0: usual. Yeah, and I think more so than other weeks, we kind of leaned on the idea that we were going to have two episodes to talk about the topic, because we spent a decent amount of time last week, and we spent a lot of time talking about the DDT, but we didn't really get super in-depth in the how it became every finisher. We talked about how every finisher became the DDT, if that makes sense. But I think what you see in the, the reason we made the connection to cover songs is that The DDT was, for a lot of people, is like the quintessential finisher, but because it was the quintessential finisher for a really long time, people tried to make it into a finisher, like use the DDT for other reasons, when in reality, Jake the Snake was the only one that could really pull it off. And two people come to mind in particular, and yeah, there are modifications. The two most successful DDT users have been Cactus Jack, and Dean Ambrose, both like lunatic characters, which is the opposite of what Jake was. And I think that's partially why those two guys were able are able to use that finisher in a way that like actually got over in a way that surprises me. Because I always think it's a dumb finisher, but people seem to like him.
1: Yeah, I mean, last week we talked about Jake as like the ultimate psychological heel. The, the kind of wild man is definitely at the opposite end of the spectrum from that. I always loved Cactus's uh, variation because it just looked like so sloppy and desperate uh, for one thing. Like it was never like pretty. Like when I think of, let's say like, uh, speaking of another early adopter, so to speak, like Arne Anderson's DDT is like really, really beautiful. And the timing on it is like really, really great. Whereas like Cactus's DDT was like a desperation move to plant the guy on their head. And he was butterflying their arms to keep them from blocking ostensibly, which was just like a really, really cool variation. Like you said, it makes it seem... Even, it makes it seem vicious in a different way. Jake was psychologically vicious, and the DDT was the exclamation point of that. You know, Cactus Jack was supposed to be physically vicious, and his DDT and his variation on the DDT really kind of reflected that as well with the kind of unblockable, uh, just coming at you real wild version.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what you see a lot when you look at covers that succeed. Is there almost never song like just slightly different versions of the original song, right? You know what I'm saying? It's never just like, oh, this is a slightly more up-tempo version of blank. It's almost always a complete restructuring. Can you think of a cover that is just basically a slight variation of that's successful in a meaningful way that's just a slight variation? I can't personally think of one.
1: No, I think part of what makes something a really successful cover is kind of making it your own. I mean, if you just sing the song uh, as sung on the album, then that's basically like what people do at karaoke night, or like what just kind of, you know, normal town bar bands that are totally good and worthwhile, but not famous and, and rich, you know, th- that's kind of in that territory. On the other hand, though, I think to make a little bit of a distinction, I think there are standards, and like the tradition of a standard is that it kind of is supposed to be sung as written and that it's just about the very slight variations of the different people's voices. Like there are certain songs where it's like the way Cole Porter sang them and the way Michael Bublé sings them are like very, very similar on purpose. But, But kind of that singing standards is its own different thing.
0: Yeah. That's like a drop kick, almost.
1: Yeah, that's a great analogy. Where it's like, yeah, exactly. It's it's it, everybody knows what a drop kick is, and there's many, many, many slight different variants. But other than like Okada or whatever, or you know, the the, the kind of Finn Balor or whatever, other
0: than people, or or the Braun Strowman, it it has to be a Braun Strowman or an or, It either has to be so beautiful like Okada's that it transcends the sport, or it has to be so ridiculous like Braun Strowman that you're just like, that's fucking awesome. Or
1: or, or it's almost like the. Uh, Harry Nelson, at like the height of his powers, did a whole album of standards and like supposedly everybody told him not to do it, but he insisted on doing it. And it's really weird because the way that the music is arranged, all the songs kind of sound the same and bleed into each other, like there's... Part of it, he sings Somewhere Over the Rainbow, but during various parts of it, they're playing in the background the melody from As Time Goes By, which is another song that he also sings on that same album of Standards. So it's like, I don't know how I got down this tangent of talking about Harry Nelson singing Standards. I'm really sorry. I guess there are kind of mind fuck things you can still do within the realm of standard singing. But I I guess I'm, to to go back to where we started, yes, I agree with your original thesis that you have to make a cover your own in some distinct way for it to be worth talking about.
0: Uh, We're going to focus more on the Nature Boy cover. What a lot of people don't realize about Ric Flair is that he is himself a repack, not a repackaging, I I don't want to call it an homage. Is it a ripoff? Or is it somewhere in between the two of Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, who is famously the first WWWF champion, though he lost it to Bruno in, like, 17 seconds, I believe?
1: Yeah, I think it was one of those deals where he had previously lost the NWA title back to Fez or whoever, and they just chose not to acknowledge that in New York, brought him in as the World Heavyweight Champion, and just had him put Bruno over. So he was the first champion that even saying that, like, is kind of sticky.
0: (laughs) But... And he was, at, at the very least, a significant enough figure in wrestling to get to the point where they thought that might be a good idea. But what you you see, and, and I think it, it reminds me, and you brought this up beforehand when we were talking about the planning out the show, it kind of reminds me of the way that Bob Dylan songs get covered. Like, All Along the Watchtower is literally a song that Bob Dylan prefers Jimi Hendrix arrangement.
1: Bob Dylan is someone who lends himself to being covered in much the way that I guess Buddy Rogers did. I mean, you know, in the 50s and 60s, there was like the, the bleach, the bleach blonde, uh, like beach bully type heel. And it's funny because you talk about Flair being kind of a cover like by the 80s or by the late 70s, early 80s, when Flair was really getting big that was already sort of an anachronistic character in the culture otherwise. So it's interesting that, you know, that kind of like beach bum kicking sand uh, on the guy and stealing his girlfriend. Like that's, that's like a 50s or early 60s heel, like a, a Net Funicello movie heel. You know what I mean? So, 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 so I mean, you know, you know bleach blonde, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, that was sort of the heel characters, the arrogant bleach blonde guy who would steal your girlfriend. And I think Buddy Rogers was kind of the zenith of it in the golden era of it. Um, But I think that what Flair did, even though he called himself the nature boy and even though he used his hold and stuff, it wasn't like he was saying, I am Buddy Rogers and you should look at me the same way you look at him. I mean, it was also almost a heel thing in and of itself. Like, who does this guy think he is? Mm -hmm. He's someone else.
0: What you see a lot of the times, and and it's interesting that you talk about that Buddy Rogers is the zenith of a certain type of villain, is that – Obviously, I don't think I'm breaking new ground here. Bob Dylan is perhaps the greatest songwriter in American music history. I I don't think there's much competition. Uh, You may disagree. Um, So when – like you said, he lends himself because it's such a structurally strong song – all of his songs are for the most part that they lend themselves because they're so good that you can pick at They're almost standards in and of themselves that you can like kind of pick and pull at and, and change into these other things because they're the, the actual structure of the song is so strong. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. It's like the writing
1: is there. Like even when Bob Dylan's songs don't make any sense, the words sound good together. You know, like he's he's definitely that kind of a poet, which is funny because I mean, now he kind of like his name is Bob Dylan, which is taken from Dylan Thomas, and he's kind of connected to Dylan Thomas in that sense that he can make the words sound really good even if you're not sure what they mean. But I think part of what makes him such a great artist to cover, in addition to that, is and I don't mean this in like a in a, a judgmental or negative way. He doesn't have a great singing voice, so when Bob Dylan performs the song it's almost like a spoken word artist or almost like somebody you know like a pre-production recording like when you hear what your favorite band sounds like pre-production like that's what the dylan album recording sounds like and and that's not a knock and i mean he did do high production stuff like when he did national skyline uh the country album like that's big production stuff but but i think that he performs his own work in such a simplistic way And the way he sings, like, not that it's bad, but he's, it's unpretentious. And uh, I think that he really sets other people up to follow him successfully, that he does his song his way, but he leaves people room to really do lots of different stuff with it and take it different directions.
0: Yeah. And I, like I said, it's very interesting that he's kind of, I don't want to say humble, He's obviously not humble. He's Bob Dylan, um, but he is acutely aware of that on some level when he writes these things. Like I was shocked to find out that he literally performs Hendrix like style. He he calls it a tribute to Hendrix when he sings the song that he wrote that Hendrix covered, like that to me tells you a lot about how he sees his, he sees what he's doing. And I I don't think this is necessarily a corollary to Buddy Rogers, but he sees his, what he's doing as like giving out into the world, this music. And I think what you see in wrestling and to be clear, Ric Flair is not the only person that's stolen a gimmick. Like, you see this a lot, but it's never a shitty gimmick that gets stolen. You know what I'm saying? It's never just like... I, I Again, I can't think of a single gimmick that was taken from one level to another unless it was completely reinterpreted through another situation, like... Or an act of parody. Like, I, I, to me, that it is very difficult to... Unless the actual – because look at, for instance, um, and this isn't a heel, but Ronda Rousey doing a Steve Austin impression works because Ronda Rousey is an actual badass. And that character is fucking great. That is a great character, but it only works when you can embody it in a a full kind of way. You can't just – Say, oh, I'm gonna pretend to be a badass. Like you actually have to be a badass in the way that, like, Jimi Hendrix was actually a great musician. Yeah, I mean,
1: they, they, what's it they always say in wrestling? Right? Everybody says it. it's all about like finding yourself and finding who you are, and you can't be doing anybody else's act, really. I mean, how many different guys have grown out their hair and put on furry boots and gone to Japan and thought that they were gonna somehow, you know, get rich and famous like Bruiser Brody did? Like, <laughs> like at least a dozen different guys, and you know, it hasn't worked for anybody. No, it's it's definitely true that you can't just put somebody else's skin on, uh, so to speak, and, and suddenly be accepted as them and be successful the way they were. And and once again, it kind of comes back to the, to the cover song, that idea of like in the, All Along the Watchtower, the way that, you know, Hendrix blends his own vocal and then the kind of the second vocal layer, which is kind of the singing of the guitar. Like he adds a whole second layer of complexity to the song that isn't there in the original version. So it's not like he's just saying like, Bob's the most brilliant songwriter of all time. I'm going to do another Bob song because I like Bob, which I've heard interviews where he he says things like that. He talked very candidly about his appreciation for Bob Dylan. But what he said is like, this is a great song by Bob, and it inspires me to put on this great
0: new performance. Uh, Another song you mentioned that I thought was an interesting uh, parallel was Guns N' Roses cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door, which I think changes the song's feeling a little bit. It makes it feel much, this is going to sound incredibly stupid, the bigness of Guns and Roses makes it feel like you could actually, he's actually talking about Knocking on heaven's door. Does that make sense or do I sound like a crazy person?
1: Oh, no, definitely I grew up, you know as a child of
0: the late 80s like
1: I grew up with the Guns N' Roses version and to be honest Had not heard the Dylan version till like my late high school years and yeah I agree that it has like this grandiose feel to the point where like growing up I never really kind of listened to the lyrics and Realized you know that it's literally about someone's dying moments um you know because it had that huge big production sound and just the you know the really distinct guitar by Slash the really really distinct vocal by Axl Rose um you know it had this huge production feel where like I wasn't even paying attention to the lyrics that closely because it's like yeah it's knocking on heaven's door it's got that kind of great like peak guitar rock kind of sound going on and and Axl Rose really brought you know kind of did his own thing once again with the vocal, doing stuff that Dylan wouldn't or couldn't or just Could chose not to do. <laughs> like I just remember even like the when even when I listen to the the Dylan song now when he goes, you know knock knock knocking on heaven's door in my head I can't help but think hey 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 like you know what I mean like it really read oh, the song to me like so once again, he kind of went in the space that Dylan chose not to go into, and he filled out that part of the song, and the kind of beautiful, poetic, western gunslinger dying in his mother's arms narrative that's in the original Dylan song, that's kind of missing from the Guns N' N' Roses version, but the big production, awesome guitar rock, like you said, just literally like a religious experience, that that comes out
0: of the cover. And I think you do get, and I'm not comparing the two, but it feels more visceral to me. And it could be a function of. It's going to sound insane. I sincerely think if she does it correctly, mind you, she is a terrible promo. But I think she can actually pull off, uh, meaning Ronda Rousey, the me against the entire world including the quote-unquote authority as well if not better than stone cold would uh, could rather because she is such a powerful presence that existed outside the context of the wwe which is to say that ronda rousey is famous in a way that the wwe is famous where Stone Cold Steve Austin became famous through the WWE. There was no question beyond kayfabe that the WWE and Stone Cold Steve Austin needed each other equally. That is not the case. And the same way it wasn't for Guns N' Roses, they didn't need to do that cover. They were early fucking Guns N' Roses, but they were like, this is a badass song that we can make even more badass in their heads whether or not it's actual badass song is up for debate but like I think what Rhonda does is is gives you that larger than life thing where like Austin is was great because he was, Stone Cold Steve Austin is perhaps the, perhaps the most gifted performer of his generation and before he got hurt he was also probably one of the five best in ring workers where I don't think Rhonda, ha- Rhonda's not going to break her neck hopefully, God willing um Not good. I was about to say. That's
1: a hell of a jinx.
0: But uh, do do you agree with me or do you think I'm being completely nuts here? I don't
1: think you're being completely nuts. I think that you're more sure of her developing into a great wrestling character than I am. Like for me right now, it's like she's – I think it's kind of like – 33% stone cold, like 66% Patrick Swayze from roadhouse. (laughs) Uh, Like I really think that's what she's going for sometimes, especially I don't know her posture. She, she really reminds me of Patrick Swayze, which is, I apologize for that comparison, but I also don't. (laughs) Um, I, I think that she has the potential. She's someone who actually has the potential to change the way that people think about wrestling, like professional
0: wrestling. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's what I, yeah, that's what I'm saying is that she, and sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. but at, oh, she also has the added advantage of not having, what, 50 years of history weighing her down the way that Stone Cold did. That, like, she feels like she could actually get pissed off at the WWE and leave. Does that make sense? Like, I think she feels like, I don't want to say she's bigger than wrestling, but she has enough gravitas as as a performer outside the context of what she physically does in the ring that i think that it, it that's why it works in the way that the guns and roses cover worked does that make sense i think it does i
1: think that you know austin uh, you know austin had that believable kind of like fu anti-authority thing even like as you very astutely pointed out like he really needed the wwf when he got there there's been this kind of like alternative narrative emerging the last couple of years that like oh what if austin had stayed in ecw a little longer and it it just wasn't it wasn't something that was going to happen it's not worth talking about like he financially needed the security and in terms of just structure in terms of in order to break out in the way he he did, he needed a better platform than he'd ever be afforded in ECW, just in terms of reach and size. But it's really interesting because on the other hand, Rhonda Rousey, I mean, she is more or less financially independent, like set for life. Like she is doing this as a retirement hobby. This is whittling to her. This is making birdhouses, or uh picking up the balls at the driving range. Like this is her retirement job and that gives her real leverage. Like Austin was an anti-authority figure and and, and you kind of had to forget, like we just said, you kind of had to forget the part that you know, he was on some level, an employee who was dependent upon them. But she, I think could play a similar character because she has the actual leverage. That's something that's real. She doesn't need to be there. And like you said, if she got pissed off, she could just walk out.
0: She is taking the character and adding something to, but she is just Stone Cold and a little, like aesthetically Roddy Piper character-wise she is Stone Cold, and I, I don't think there's that much space between Roddy Piper and Stone Cold, I just think the idea of an authority figure in a traditional sense was not what it was when Rowdy was around that's why Roddy didn't fight with authority figures in a meaningful yeah because they didn't (laughs) exist so but like given that he would have so i think that if she is part of a lineage in the way that like that song is part of the lineage of the evolution of and i i don't know you would know better than i would the transition of Popular music from a kind of poppy folk style to a rock style. Uh, What I think you see with that, that evolution is when it goes right. But what you see, and I bring up Nature Boy again, Nature Boy Ric Flair begot Nature Boy Buddy Lindell, who is just like... (laughs) Dave, could you? Because I've, I haven't, I don't think I've seen enough of him to really. He, oh, oh man, he makes me laugh.
1: <laughs> you know what's funny is I was recently. Uh, I just wanted to put something on in the background while I was doing some work, and I put on In Your House Five. And he has he does a quick job for Ahmed Johnson on that show. <laughs> and like, would you have ever guessed if I hadn't just told you that those two people existed
0: on like the same plane? No, no, not not ethereal plane, nothing. Like <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Like one of them is, is, is clearly some sort of pan-dimensional being in that that, that scenario. But no, buddy, I mean Buddy Landell was was doing you know, was was doing Rogers, but was definitely supposed to be doing Flair. And I think on one hand, it's like we talked about with Tully Blanchard that in the territory days when Flair was the world's champion and was traveling. There was definitely money, and there was definitely uh, there was definitely an important place for people who were kind of like Flair. You know what I mean? Like someone like I said, like in the way that Tully could kind of communicate to the audience that someone might be ready for Flair. That, you yeah,
0: know, and. Some- uh- and I think that's similar to the way that rap uses like samples, right? They like pull samples from shit and are like, "This works within the context of this song, but it's not my entire. It's not the entire song. It's just part or my entire oeuvre. It is a part of one song that I've created, and that's kind of what Tully. Did. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good analogy.
1: And I, but but I mean, for for there, there's that thing where I think that Landell was. We talked about, you know, needing to get a little distance between yourself and the source material to really make it your own. And I just don't think that he found the right balance. He was different from flair, but just in ways that diminished him. Like he wasn't his, his, he wasn't in as good of shape as flair. His arms were smaller. His midsection was normaler. or I, I guess I'll say compared to compare to a, a schlub like you or I, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, and his like,
0: hair wasn't as good, it was like Ric Flair hair, but like
1: No, and his rope and his robes had the sequins, but they were way cheaper and you could tell there were fewer sequins and they were thinner and shorter. You know, that it was it was it was he was just so impaired when put anywhere near Flair, just because not because it was a cover, but because it was a cover that that wasn't sure of its identity and couldn't find the right distance from the source material.
0: Yeah, and and some of that is Buddy Landell, but a lot of that is on Ric Flair. He has such gravitas. He he is almost a, a like a, in terms of gravity. He's almost like a planet relative to everyone else, especially in like because there's um I forgot what year it was, but there is a Buddy Landell and this is funny Dustin Rhodes match. And Dustin Rhodes is doing basic is the natural at the time. And he's basically doing the American dream. Like he looks like the he looks like Dusty Rhodes' his dad, obviously. But like really, like almost intentionally so. And I, I think what you see with it, and it's the same time that Flair's on the show, and Buddy Landell just looks like a loser. He just looks like he has no chance against but Dustin Rhodes. And Nature Boy would never, that would never happen with Nature Boy. Uh, sorry, not Nature. I, I'm, I'm Ric Flair, that would never happen with Ric Flair. Ric Flair would never look like he didn't have a chance against a Dust, uh, young Dustin Rhodes.
1: Oh, no, not at all. Like you said, Flair had the gravitas we talked last week about, you know, Jake Roberts being a very powerful wrestler in spite of not necessarily looking like a super physically powerful guy. And like... That was definitely the thing that Landell was lacking. I mean, by all accounts from, from, you know, people like Cornette and saw him on, you know, a more smaller territory basis in, in, in more rural towns and not big TV tapings and stuff that he was great at getting heat at live events. But I, I definitely agree that he did not have the personality that came across on TV. And again, he was doing something so very near the act of the person who got across maybe better than anybody else ever other than The Rock.
0: What, what I thought was, a, and we again, we talked about, uh, this is something you wanted to bring up, uh, and it made me instantly think of Ric Flair and Buddy Landell, was Beatles covers which is this whole almost genre of music. Like Yesterday, I believe, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, is the most covered song in history. I have basically never heard, uh, I mean, obviously, I'm pretty sure Elvis did a Yesterday cover, but nothing comes close to the original version of Yesterday. Nothing's within the same stratosphere of that song. And, And I feel like, With Ric Flair, you had the same thing. You cannot cover the fucking Beatles unless you're Joe Cocker. No,
1: exactly, and and it's interesting because like I talked earlier about how like uh, you know Dylan maybe wasn't the great vocalist, and that made it easier for other people to cover his material. It's like Cocker wasn't the songwriter; he was just the great vocalist. So like all he needed was the text, and so the Beatles for him were like the perfect, you know, they were that perfect text to really. Because, I mean, like, uh, what is it? Mad Dogs and Englishmen is still just, like, an incredible live album. Just, like, he he had an incredible voice. And I think he he literally, in terms of just the sounds he made, had a great voice. And But the Beatles helped him find his voice as a kind of singer-storyteller.
0: And I think what's also important is that uh, we didn't exactly mention, is that the other version of that, the Beatles version of the song, is sung by Ringo, who, God bless him, sure he's a nice guy. Not anywhere near Joe Cocker in terms of vocals. Not, again, not in the same stratosphere. Like, I think I could sing better than, I'm not going to, but I feel like I could sing better than Ringo. Ringo, I, on no planet, could hit half the notes that Joe Cocker, like, used to hit rolling out of bed.
1: (laughs) You know, bringing it back to Harry Nilsson. You know the uh, the Harry Nilsson song, the best friend that they used as the theme song for Robin Big. That song is about Ringo Starr. So we've come full circle.
0: <laughs> but it, it also reminds me. It doesn't just remind me of um, Rick Flair. It also reminds me of Dolph Ziggler, actually, because Dolph Ziggler's big problem, and, and and he's starting to move past that is that he's just doing a Shawn Michaels impression. And Shawn Michaels is, in terms of, again, the gravitas that he has, the Ric Flair of his generation for the boys in the back. Like, they think he is the best guy in ring ever. Like, from Stone Cold to, like, AJ Styles, everybody in between basically points to, in terms of American wrestlers, Shawn Michaels. As the best, and then you look at Dolph Ziggler, who's very talented, but he's not Shawn Michaels. And and you can be a talented singer; you can be Elvis. Elvis is a great singer. You can't cover the Beatles and have it transcend the Beatles. No, definitely
1: not. And, and even the people who can kind of carry Beatles songs really effectively, like they're not my favorite band, but I always think like U two does incredible Beatles covers. Uh, I.
0: And Fiona Apple has, I mean, it's, your mileage may vary, but her, for instance, her uh, cover of Across the Universe is a good version, but it's not it doesn't transcend the original version it's just a good version
1: no i agree and, and those people and what maybe it's it's kind of interesting because i was talking earlier about how much you need to make it your own and the thing that i like about the youtube beatles covers is they actually don't try to make it their own it's like when you listen to like uh i think it's on rattle and hum one of the live albums before they do helter skelter bono says this song charles manson stole from the beatles we're stealing the fuck when you get to the bottom you go back to the top of the slide and you stop and you turn and you go for a ride. Then you get to the bottom then you see me again It's like almost like he is self-consciously just like stepping right out like breaking any fourth wall and saying like hey everyone we're doing a Beatles song cuz we really like the Beatles and we're not going to apologize for it cuz the Beatles are great and then the song kicks ass but it's almost just because that he does make the nod, or they as a band do make the nod, and just say like we're just doing this because we love it and it's great. We're not trying to like reimagine the Beatles through our artistic lens, which I think is like where people get a little lost. Like I remember, uh, I heard a version of Maxwell's Silver Hammer once that was just like uh, a woman scat singing over a stand-up bass, and uh, it, it didn't work. <laughs>
0: oh man that sounds that sounds bad and like i have heard there's another cover that uh it's aretha franklin doing eleanor rigby it is not eleanor rigby at all and i think it's a similar thing with joe cocker um that if you listen to the arrangements of his version and the Ringo Starr star version they're different they just are and it, it's it's Ringo sounds like a little kid singing it.
1: Oh, yeah, it's the same on, like, Octopus's Garden. Like, he has, like, a very childlike character. And if you if you watch any of the Beatles movies, like Hard Day's Night or Help, those are definitely the two I recommend. Help is a, an amazing movie that more people should have seen, uh, or should more people our age should have seen, I, I'll say. Uh, but in the Beatles movies, like, Ringo did play, like, a cute but dumb character. Like, he was supposed to be kind of the childlike one. You even see it in the yellow submarine animated movie even though he doesn't play himself in that but uh but no like i mean joe cocker makes that um, a man's song which is interesting because like the main line which is part of what makes the ringo version so sing song and childlike is the uh i get by with a little help from i know don't, edit that out actually leave it in because my pitch is so bad but the chorus the chorus which is very sing song and childlike cocker doesn't sing the backup singers sing, and like that makes all the difference in the song. That completely changes the song. That instead of this like sing-song childlike thing, it's just this like big rolling, like deeply masculine song. Somehow, suddenly,
0: and it, what it, it, it it's a weird analogy. It kind of reminds me of Seth Rollins acting closer to a uh, Shawn Michaels. Like Seth Rollins does the curb stomp or the, cur- the Stomp, I believe it's called now. Um, and he does the burn it down with, the, like he does the sweet chin music load up. But it works because he's not Shawn Michaels. He's like an evolutionary Shawn Michaels in a way that that is an evolution of the song Get By With A Little Help From My Friends. Like it is a fundamentally different thing. It is a much you said it's a man's version, which I think is accurate. It's a much more like Ringo's Kind of, you can hear the smirk when he says, "Get high with a little help from my friends." He's kind of laughing about it. Oh, I get by with a little help from my mm, I get high with a little help
1: from my
0: mm, gonna try with a little help from my friend. Joe Cocker is not. He is. Sin- there's a sincere feeling of losing something there's this there's almost a sense of loss in in fear in his version that just does not exist in the beatles version
1: what would you do if i sang out of tune would you stand up and walk out on Let me Lend me your ears
0: and i'll sing you a song i will try not to sing out of key
1: Oh, baby, it. I She came in through the bathroom window is another Beatles song that he covered, and that's another one where like it's uh I think, I think it's a Paul song. <laughs> I, or at least the vocal is Paul. He didn't write it. But it's got that like very like light Beatles tone. And it's one of those songs where it's like the lyrics don't make a lot of sense, but all the words sound good. Kind of like what I was describing earlier with Dylan. But like he turns it into like a very, very tortured narrative somehow. Like he creates this whole other level to it. That just, it's incredible to see someone do that with a Beatles song. And like I said before, I think it goes back to like him not having ego as being a songwriter himself, like him just being a singer and just trying to kind of interpret this great Beatles song or do his version of it. It's like so much better than him kind of like bringing his agenda, I guess, of like how am I going to prove that I'm as brilliant as these guys rather than like, how can I just do the best fucking version of this possible?
0: Yeah. And I think Seth Rollins is doing the best possible version of a variation of Shawn Michaels where Ziggler is literally just doing Shawn Michaels down to the pants
1: yeah and, and, and you know what it's crazy too because it's like he's doing Shawn Michaels right before Shawn Michaels really put it together I guess that's what's really frustrating to me is he's like Wrestlemania 9 Shawn Michaels eternally <laughs> right I guess that's yeah. like did he not get that Michaels wasn't there yet it's like Michaels was clearly like a great worker and I'm sure he was just tearing every house to shreds you know at the house shows every night and stuff but it's like when you watch the Michaels of that era, it's like the way he wrestled a lot of other people couldn't keep up with in a way that like you came away from the match knowing that Shawn Michaels was great, but like the overall, whatever result of the match, I think that's one thing with Michaels that I, this is like dangerous territory, but I think that's one thing with Shawn Michaels is a little overrated. I think that when you watch a Shawn Michaels match, you always knew that Shawn Michaels was great. But like, I, I think that there are a lot of times where he put out a great effort and I, I just don't think the matches are necessarily the sum of his parts sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, no, and I agree. And I think that's a common, un, a, an understood thing about, especially pre-comeback Shawn Michaels, that he was the guy at WrestleMania 11 that kind of makes Diesel look like shit and makes himself look like the baby face. It's what he did. There's, there's a, basically an argument, and I completely disagree with it, that he could have wrestled the ladder match at WrestleMania 10 by himself, that kind of stuff. It's only till you, end to bring it back a little bit, it's only when you see him work with someone like Mick Foley as Mankind in the Mind Games match, which if you are going to watch a match of Shawn Michaels, that's one of the two or three best because it's where he starts to kind of get it. He starts to kind of understand I'm not I am my own man and I exist in my own space. And that character is going to interact with other characters. I am not the entire fucking match.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things they always point out about early 90s Shawn Michaels or early early singles around Shawn Michaels on OSW Review is that for a while his like his catchphrase was, I don't think so. Which is, you know, like was a kind of like stereotypical or just really hackneyed 90s catchphrase and like I I don't know, arguably stolen for home improvement or just any, you know, the kind of, I don't think so sarcastic line. It was just like the dumbest and shallowest and just like didn't mean anything line. He just said it because it was something people said to be obnoxious. But when he like stopped doing that, when he got to, you know, like the, let's say like '96. Like, he just started saying the dick stuff that he wanted to say. Like, before he was saying the generic dick stuff that dicks say. But when Sean discovered what Dick Sean wanted to say, like, that's when he really became a star. And, like, it, like I said, it's just like Ziggler is just like, maybe needs to start watching tapes from, like, two years further in the future because the version of Michael's that he's emulating is the version that was having trouble getting over because it was inauthentic. The way he was like, sorry, the way he was wrestling, like the, the the pace of the business wasn't ready for it yet, and it made it awkward. And the way he talked, like I said, there was no distinctness to it. He was just doing like a generic character.
0: Yeah, and I think what you what you see and, and the difference for Seth Rollins is Seth Rollins came into the WWE as a, a fully realized character that again existed outside the context of a Shawn Michaels, obviously, obviously obviously was influenced by Shawn Michaels. Every person from this generation was him and Bret Hart, everybody. But he had created this character and he wanted to be a wrestler because he wanted to be a professional wrestler. Didn't go to college, wrestled all through his teens, worked his way up, was in ROH. Then he was, he was the champion in FCW slash NX before became NXT. And then he came up and he made a splash as a character that was not Shawn Michaels. So when he turned into Shawn Michaels, it was like, whoa. In the same way, and uh, to, to bring it back once again, Harry Nielsen, you would know better than I would, but he wasn't trying to be the Beatles he wasn't trying to be something he wasn't. He was trying to be the one of the great singers in the history of the media.
1: Well, if you, uh, they actually, if, you, if you see the documentary, uh, Who is Harry Nelson and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? Which I strongly recommend. They actually talk about how he had kind of, I don't want to say an obsession. Well, I guess I'll say it. He had like an obsession with the Beatles because they famously stated in an interview, they asked, I think it was, it was, it was all the Beatles, and they asked, Who's your favorite uh, singer, I think? And John said, Nilsson. And then they asked, who's your favorite band? And Paul said, Nielsen. And uh, supposedly he really took that to heart and that was really important to him, that, that he was the Beatles' favorite act, even though he himself was to some degree sort of a Beatles imitator. And that, that I know, once again, like I was kind of joking about earlier, that he did develop a very close relationship or friendship with Ringo in the 70s and 80s. And that kind of, it did kind of sickly become too much a part of his identity that, you know, he was such an incredible admirer of the Beatles and that they loved him back in that way. It was in some ways very productive and good for his career and mental health and in some days very counterproductive and bad for his career.
0: And mental yeah, health. yeah. And I think what's nice about Seth Rollins is he's largely avoided that. And what you see now is the, the angle he's working with Seth Rollins. He's kind of doing exactly what you mentioned that he's kind of now starting to get into with Drew McIntyre the as his heavy when especially in the idea that like drew mcintyre is actually the real quote unquote star in that group um uh, in that pairing you see him kind of evol- evolving into a more palatable version of sean michaels but at the same time he's still not transcending and 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 part of that is the gravitas but part of it is it's just he's not as good and i think that was the real thing for the beatles is no one and and i i will not hear an argument that, <laughs> i mean you might give me one and i'll have to accept it that the beatles aren't the best pop group of all time they to me they they are unequivocally the best not just the most popular but the actual honest to god best like you listen to revolver and it is like 10 it is what 13 songs. And each one of those songs is almost like it's another entire genre of music. It is the, the, and you look at Shawn Michaels matches, you look at matches he has against nobody's or even a Mick Foley where Mick Foley's best match and favorite match is a, a Shawn Michaels match. Basically every single person's favorite match is a shot that worked with him is a Shawn Michaels match. Cause he just did it better than everybody for an entire generation. And that's basically, and he did it at a time where he was one of two or three people doing it in the same way that it was like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, they were the ones that built the foundation for what we understand to be modern wrestling. And and I think that's that's like the real catch is you kind of have to, and there's only so many stories, there's only so many characters. So you kind of have to like pull, like I said, and that's, that's what happened with, to me, rock music in general, is that you had this thing where there was only so far you, and, and pop, the... Beatles' version of pop eventually became, uh, along with a bunch of other stuff and more blues influence, the what became 70s rock on some level, they set the stage for everything that came after them, and you just can't get past that. There's certainly
1: the law of diminishing returns, uh, you know, and and, and I think that it applies across the board in wrestling, whether you're talking about spots, whether you're talking about finishes, whether you're talking about gimmicks, whether you're talking about storylines, right? That, I mean, it's like they say in, like, improv comedy that, you know, If you get a big laugh on something do it again if you get another big laugh do it a third time but like don't you ever dare do it that fourth time because that's self-indulgent and it's going to drop off huge and then like you're gonna look like the person who only could come up with one funny joke and kept trying to go back to it And, and and i think that that kind of applies to cover songs as well i mean if if, connecting kind of everything that we've been saying here, both about like the progression of the business and about, you know, kind of Dolph Ziggler, Shawn Michaels, and and bringing a lot of these ideas together. I think that part of the issue with Ziggler is that he's been a cover band for so long, whether it was, you know, he went through a Mr. Perfect phase, and then he kind of went through a Billy Gunn phase. And then the last couple of years, it's been like a Shawn Michaels phase, but he's been the cover band for so long. The cover band, like there's very few stories about cover bands breaking out in their late thirties or whatever. And, you know, a, bi- a cover band really hitting it big and become nationally, internationally famous because you have to transcend that at some point, And you have to define yourself as an individual. You can't just like live on as a cover act forever, unless you create a specific niche for yourself where you're like Richard cheese. Or he's like, yes, I've sung every pop song of the last 50 years, but I make them all sound like shitty lounge songs or whatever. Like you have to carve out that niche for yourself. But if you're, if you just continue to be a cover band, like the Beatles, like half of a half of their first album, their British album, uh, half of their first album were cover songs. But by the time you get to uh, meet the Beatles, the, the first American album, they're almost all originally written songs. And, and and when you, in the world of wrestling, we so frequently see acts and promotions, frankly, that can't grow past that cover band stage, that can't transition from doing half covers and half original songs to doing all original songs. And, and I do think that like, not that I lose sleep over this, but that is kind of one of the things that makes me worried about the wrestling business is it seems, so much right now that people are either going back to the well and like literally doing, Hey, that's the finish from that match. That's the spot from that match. Or on the other hand, trying to do stuff that's like so genre redefining and limit breaking that like you lose sight of the structure that held everything together to begin with. And I think that the wrestling business as a whole and wrestlers as individuals need to get better at making this transition from from being cover acts to kind of being their own band with their own identity, their own albums.
0: And I think part of that is pulling back, and again, I've never worked a match. I'm not going to tell people how to do their jobs, but it feels that part of that is the way in which wrestling is now, wrestling matches themselves are now developed. They are much more structured. They're much more planned out than they ever were before so there's no sense of taking what the crowd is feeling and working that into it in the way that like and i hate to use this analogy like a jam band does where they're just kind of feeling and they kind of flow like i don't want to that those are and what's funny is those are like the successful rock bands now are these touring jam bands they're not there's really no significant rock acts anymore because everything has become this cover of a cover of a cover of a cover of a cover. You talked about U2. You look at Coldplay. Coldplay. I, I would assume. I, I, I don't. I stopped paying attention a long time ago. Begot Muse. You know what I'm saying? Like the. Oh yeah, definitely. And then Muse. It's like what? Well, well it comes after Muse. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's what happened. Is the, you have to get to a point where you're taking all of that shit and mixing it up so much. And again, that's what rat does so well is take these beats and these these samples and everything we know and reinterpret them and recontextualize them and I think that's what needs to happen and I think that's why of wrestle of the especially big time wrestling the most vibrant to me division is the WWE women's division because they don't have that they don't they aren't bogged down in the way that the other stuff is so when you see sasha and bailey and you see this like breakup of a friendship it doesn't a have that and this is something we talked about in a previous episode it doesn't have that homoerotic aspect to it which kind of underlies the entire thing it doesn't necessarily make it bad but it it, it's not about the it's about an actual friendship it's about an actual real friendship because we don't have all this baggage attached to it And, and i think that's why like asuka versus yes asuka versus um Charlotte Flair was kind of uh, almost like a, 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 like a face versus face kind of thing, which we've seen a bunch of times. I don't want to call Charlotte Flair exactly a face, but like that's why the match worked so well because we had never seen that shit before through the the style because it, it, it's almost like a, a the the women's style is a fun is this nice mix between cruiserweight because of their size and. Act, like more standard Americanized wrestling because of the size differentials and things like that. So you get both. You get people who are five foot nine, five foot 10 at most, and are extremely athletic doing shit that, you know, the cruiserweights do. But also because Asuka's five foot six, let's say, and Charlotte's five foot 10, Charlotte can beat up Asuka in a way that doesn't feel like I'm having to add anything to the story to make it feel more realistic.
1: No, I agree with you that uh, the, the women are definitely my
0: favorite part of the WWE
1: right now overall. And I think that I know the last like two, three years just kind of a lot has been made both by fans and by WWE themselves about like, you know, uh, progress and evolving the role of the women on the show. And That's great, and I'm happy for it. But I'm really glad that we're officially past the firsts. Like, we've done a Royal Rumble. We've done a cage match. We've done a Hell in a Cell. We've done whatever.
0: uh, Main event did a pay-per-view. Main event did Raw. It's like, I feel like... Now they've made event Raw, and it's just a women's match main eventing Raw, it's not like oh my god, this is the first time ever, it's like no it's just a tag match that's main eventing Raw, that's cool yeah,
1: and again, I think for me, that would be a sign of that evolution, it's like all these firsts it's like okay, here's the women covering all the things that the men do for the first time, this is a first time you've heard a woman sing this song that's like um, respect like Otis Redding yes. singing respect you know, a man singing that song is very, very different from a woman singing that song and that's interesting on a certain level and it's important to see the differences, but I'm so happy for the women's division. They've moved past those firsts and now they can just focus like you're saying on having organic, real feeling matches. They don't just constantly have to be putting over the milestones. Like for the last year and a half, one thing I've I've been frustrated with with the women's division is like, they don't put over the talent. They put over the division. They put over the company for having the division and for featuring them. And they put over the milestones in the first ever's, but they don't really put the emphasis on the actual wrestlers that they that they really should and need to. So now that we've gotten so many of those firsts out of the way, I'm really looking forward to the, for the way the women's division is going to evolve from that cover band of hearing the women play the songs, the men play for the first time to really just becoming, you know, its whole own thing where you don't need to be constantly qualifying the the thing by saying this is the first women's X
0: or Y. Yeah, no, no, and, and I think they are doing the best job out of anybody of doing it of of because they they grew a lot of the women's wrestlers on the WWE roster in particular grew up as stretch strong wrestling fans, but with not necessarily the idea of I want to wrestle like a Lunder Blaze. It was I want to Sasha Banks is an Eddie Guerrero fan. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it the, so she wanted to be Eddie Guerrero, and then she got the opportunity to be Eddie Guerrero, but she's not Eddie Guerrero size. She does different things than Eddie Guerrero. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, but she took his style and incorporated it with a bunch of other stuff because she couldn't just do an Eddie Guerrero impression. It doesn't work like that in the way that it worked for Nature Boy Ric Flair.
1: Well, one example, I talked both these people up a great deal. I, I think these are like, just two of the best talent they have in NXT right now, but like Shayna Baszler versus Nikki Cross. Oh and,
0: man, that was so
1: fucking good. And and it's good because like, it's the same thing that made Sabu versus Taz good. Like you have the grappler character on one side who's, you know, tough and mean and doesn't take shit. And then on the other hand, you have the complete wild card crazy person who will just do anything. But I thought that that feud and, and the match that they had, I mean, in spite of, let's again, I know people don't love these finishes with Baszler, but like you're not supposed to like when the heel wins decisively with their finish. Like that's how wrestling works. Sorry. But, but, but I think what made those matches so special is that they tapped into that like Sabu Taz type deal but
0: without being
1: exactly it. exactly without trying to play them. Like I was saying at the beginning, they weren't trying to put these people's skin on like Shayna Baszler is not trying to be any other wrestler, male or female who has ever existed other than
0: Shayna Baszler. And I really, and she's so fucking good. She's at so it. good. I, Holy mean, shit.
1: I know people talk about like how quickly Rousey has picked things up. And I know that's really impressive. And people like to talk about that because she's done it on the main roster. But right now, Shayna Baszler is, 10 times the wrestler that ronda rousey is in terms of professional
0: wrestling and people not 10 times the star she's 10 times the in-ring no exactly exactly actually not just in ring the whole thing she's a great fucking she is the vignette for that was one of the best things they've produced since like wrestlemania 17 when it's just like nikki cross doing weird shit and Shayna Baszler being like the best heel in the fucking—I we should do it. We could do an entire episode on just that match. Like, yeah, I I could not be in more agreement that Shayna Baszler is Shayna Baszler. She's not trying to be Taz, but it invokes feelings in us in the way that a good cover does. Oh, Oh,
1: one hundred percent, exactly. I think she's perfect, and yeah, if I could, if I, if I could manage any wrestler, if I could be cutting promos for anybody in the business right now. Uh, I would want to be doing it for Shayna Baszler. I would, that, like, if I was to be a wrestler, I think, or if I was to be a wrestler manager, I think that would be the character that I would want to have. That of everybody right now, that's the person who, you know, I would be wanting to, uh, to uh, speak for and hide behind.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, um, and I, I think we can end on that because I think I, because I, I'm going to end up talking, we're going to end up talking about that match for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> so I, normally we ask, like, who's your favorite, what's a good match or whatever, but I don't think that really works for this episode. So I'm just going to ask, and it's not a wrestling related question, but what is your favorite cover? You know, um,
1: I'm I'm a fan. Like I've been saying, like I was saying before with YouTube, like I think that like the live stadium rock atmosphere, like really, really gets covers over. And uh, one of the, this is horrible because it's just horrible appropriation by a crusty old white man. So I apologize in advance. Uh, I am very, uh, partial to the Bruce Springsteen uh, rendition of Long Tall Sally by uh, Little Richard. And uh, I can also say in the in the vein of, uh, of cover songs, one thing you can do to yourself, while a little recommended viewing here, is go to YouTube and type in Little Richard, Pat Boone.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And the first video <laughs> says Little Richard versus Pat Boone. And it's from a made-for-TV biopic about Little Richard. But it absolutely just freaking nails. Like, you could – I'm telling you this at the end because basically you didn't need to listen to this whole podcast. You could have just watched this one video and gotten every main idea that we talked about through it, but check it out. Uh, little Richard versus Pat Boone on, uh, on YouTube. It's, it's them both singing long, tall Sally, both recording their versions of it, but it's like the, you know, the rhythmless, very uncool, uh, white man, Pat Boone, uh, you know, head to head with little Richard. And it kind of shows you the, um, the folly of trying to record the wrong kind of cover.
0: My favorite cover, because I'm a big sap, is I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston, which is obviously a cover of a very, very good Dolly Parton song. It's just, holy shit, does Whitney Houston knock that shit out of the fucking park. Like, like, and not just the, the, the big notes, right? She The whole song is just imbued with this, like, feeling that, again, Dolly Parton does a great job, but it feels m- even more visceral when Whitney sings it because her voice is so transcendent, which is what we talked about this entire time. Her gift was so transcendent that it just pulled up uh, what was already a brilliant song into this, like, hist- almost like a standard.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that that's like if you maybe, you know, if you ask someone, uh, sing me a song from the soundtrack of a movie from the 90s. <laughs> you know like they would they would probably go to that song from the bodyguard definitely a a yeah a defined like to the point where i don't think that too many people really know that it's a dolly parton song even though they did an excellent uh
0: episode of drunk history about uh dolly parton and yeah. Did you have a thinky wrestling podcast this week?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had uh, one quick recommendation. Um, something that I think is really fascinating. Um, it's from uh, the this week's episode of the Ross Report. So that would be the episode that would have dropped on Wednesday, the twenty seventh of June. Uh, Jr.'s guest is Kenny Omega. Um, it's kind of a slog to get all the way through to the interview. Um, so I'm just going to tell you, you kind of set your timer to about one eighteen. And that's when they- Wait, did. wait, wait, wait.
0: Can I interrupt you? Yes. He talks for an hour and 18 minutes before they get to the fucking interview? I think
1: about an hour, 10, hour, 12. And this is a few minutes into the uh, the Ken, the, Ken, the talk with Kenny. Uh, you want to pick things up at one hour and 18 minutes. And that's when Ross and uh, Omega first start talking about his series with Okada. Uh, he talks, of course, about the the huge two out of three falls match that they recently had that is airing on Access coming up here soon uh next week um but it's just it really really fascinating JR asks him to kind of take him behind the scenes and Omega obliged in a way that like I, I don't think many wrestlers really would he talks really explicitly about the psychology of the series of matches between him and Okada you know one of them gets the win the other one does one can't beat the other but the other doesn't give up he like really talks about why they decided to go to a two out of three falls match and from why both his character's perspective and Okada's perspective that really two out of three falls was the only gimmick that really made sense for this match. And he just talks about, you know, what he wanted to get across in it. And he's, he's very cerebral and, and really excellent at both. When he, when he explains the angle, it actually makes that makes it better. And I don't mean that it's lacking without his explanation because it stands on its own and is tremendous. I mean, if you haven't seen Okada Omega matches, like what are you doing? Go out there and watch them uh, because they're spectacular. But, But they're even better when you hear that there's someone, you know, kind of behind the scenes who's just so incredibly thoughtful and meticulous about these things. And it's really great to hear that there's like a wrestling company out there where someone like that can be in charge of their career and can transform themselves from being like a second or third banana to being, you know, the top star of that company and one of the biggest draws in the world in like less than three years.
0: So it it feels more like uh, somebody, like a director's commentary than somebody explaining a joke. Is that kind of what you mean? It's definitely a
1: director's commentary. And it's also just sort of like a great peek inside of his brain. And it's really, like I was saying earlier, with just some of the stuff that when I get kind of worried for wrestling, um, it's really great to see someone who's such a psychologist. And even if he approaches wrestling in a different way like even if you know even if Jim Cornette thinks that he's not really a wrestler or whatever (laughs) he's he's clearly a uh, just a brilliant psychologist and it's good to see the wrestling business in the hands of those people so I definitely recommend picking up Ross reported about the one hour 18 minute mark and just really hearing Kenny talk about his psychology the psychology of his series with Okada and specifically you know putting together that last two out of three falls match and why it was so special to him
0: Sorry, that shit's just fucking hilarious, it's an hour and ten minutes before he gets to the interview. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean he's got to do you know what's on my mind and Slaughter Knocker of the Week and uh, give out the Pet Coon Goofy Award.
0: <laughs> I, um...
1: I mean, this is really important stuff. I mean, I, I you know I I, I enjoy uh, Jr. and and his show, uh, but but. Yeah, the, the, the new Westwood One version of the show, there's a lot of JR talking into the mic to the audience. And there's nothing wrong with that because he's like a really smart, insightful person. But I think he would benefit from either having like a host, like a, not necessarily Conrad Thompson because he can only do so many podcasts and really there should only be so many Conrad Thompson podcasts. But I think he would benefit from even ha- either having someone in, in, you know, kind of someone wrangling in there with him uh, or, on the other hand, just like having the guest straight through and talking current events with the guest. Like, even if there's some old time wrestler who doesn't. You know, watch anymore still just kind of like running ideas past them and stuff because yeah i i've really enjoyed the roster report since episode one but i agree with you that it's a slog to get through to the interview sometimes these days
0: what's not a slog is next week's episode which will be on ladder matches um i know i say this every week you caught me dave but i am genuinely like very excited to talk about ladder matches. Um, and then also at next week's uh, at the end of next week's show, we will announce the next week's topic. After that, uh, so you have both of those things to look forward to: us talking about ladder matches for about an hour, and then us explaining what we'll be talking about after, uh, which is a topic that I, I think the this will be the best pair of episodes we've done so far going forward. I I don't want to hype it too much. I just think that we have. Uh, I'm really excited for the episode that comes after the ladder match and the ladder match episode. Um, Did you have any plugs this week?
1: Um, Just a couple of things really quickly. Uh, Of course, number one, as
0: always, follow me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. Uh,
1: Number two, in addition to this podcast, I uh, recently did uh, an appearance on the Wrestling Estate podcast, which is part of the uh, Team Left Jab Boxing Radio Network Uh, If you held on to the very end of the last episode, I told a little anecdote about uh, recording this podcast in which I slip a plug for this podcast in very early. If you'd like to check that out, just search Team Left Jab Boxing in your podcast app, and uh, it is the episode that dropped on this Wednesday, same day as that Ross report I recommended, so the 27th. Um, It's myself and the whole crew at the Wrestling Estate uh, talking mostly wrestling theme songs. But uh, if you like my, you know, little voices and uh, random mouth noises that I make on, on this show, uh, you should definitely check that one out.
0: That sounds awesome. I, I look forward to listening to it. Um, Dave Gibbs.
1: <laughs> yes, my, uh, my, my professional pseudonym slash. Like, I imagine that Dave Gibbs is like, you know, like in Star Trek, how they have like the evil version from the alternate dimension with like the goatee. Well, yeah, like, yeah. I have facial hair now, so like I assume that like Dave Gibbs still has like I don't know like, Dave Gibbs is like bald and has you know a handlebar mustache or something like that, but otherwise <laughs> looks exactly like me.
0: <laughs> the the reverse mirror mirror version of
1: you. <laughs> something hackneyed like that.
0: You can check me out at the next year, that's t h e n 1 c k s t e r you can also check out juice make sugar where every week we do a raw review um, i may actually start doing non raw reviews um, i have a, a podcast recommendation real quick which is bubble which is a um, an audiobook style podcast by uh, the guy the people at max fun it's a uh, really well done basically takes place in uh, a bubble uh, that is supposed to mirror Los Angeles. And uh, there's a lot of stuff involved with it, but basically it involves uh, an app for hunting imps that keep penetrating into the bubble. Um, and it, it's just got a nice, if, if you are familiar with the Max Fund suite of podcasts, The Flophouse, my personal favorite, Jordan Jesse Go, it is right in line with that. Uh, Judge John Hodgman 2, uh, myself, me, my brother, and me. Is that the name of it? Yeah. Um, all of those podcasts. Not to be
1: confused with My Brother and Me, the show I'm
0: Yeah, making. the two completely different things. Uh, imagine <laughs> that. Both, I think, both of the families are from the South, though. So, it, like, the, the accents are similar, but that's about it. Um, I
1: remember the, the TV show My Brother and Me had awesome 90s, like, New Jack swing transition music. <sighs> like, when when characters would enter and exit off screen, there would just be, like, a quick, like,
0: it was amazing. <laughs> and Kendall Gill was in an episode, so that was that will always hold a special place in my heart. Um, and uh, as we mentioned last week, and again, no pressure, the Patreon is still available. It's uh, patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. Like like Dave said, we're I, the podcast will always be fr- – uh, said last week, the podcast will always be free, but uh, if you wanted to help us pay for hosting, that would be great. Um, don't forget to – whether or not you go to patreon do not forget to go to pod uh how wrestling explains that podbean.com or on itunes and if you're on itunes and you're reading uh, you're listening to us on itunes please rate review and subscribe to us obviously five star or four star reviews are fine uh, i swear to the lord jesus if you give us a three star review uh, i'm gonna be hurt in a real way um
1: no seven stars either <laughs> i can't abide by hyperbole troubles melt like lemon drops way above the chimney tops, that's where Chris, could I have some scotch, some water, some matches, and some heroin, please? <laughs> no order. No order.
0: So <laughs> among the poor, sad a oppressive, misinformed, let me for you to fight your tongue secure, and the promise that you're right, in every is right.